0: Well, as most of you know, today we start a new book. Some of you have tried to get it out of me. Some of you have already. You know, as I prayed to the Lord and asked Him what He wanted us to do on Sundays after we've just spent two years in the book of Ephesians, I, I felt drawn to do something from the Old Testament. And as I sought the Lord about it, I felt He was laying on my heart for us to study the book of Joshua. Now, it seemed like a logical succession to our study in Ephesians because as we have just gotten done finishing the book of Ephesians, the last major section was a section that dealt with spiritual warfare. And of course, the book of Joshua, a big portion of that book, deals with warfare as the children of Israel were led into the promised land, they began to conquer it and take the territory that God had given to them. So I thought, well, that does make sense. But I really wasn't sure still until I kept praying about it. And then I uh, was reading a commentary on Joshua by F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer is a great man of God. And uh, he said this in the intro. He said, there is a book in the New Testament in deep spiritual accord with the story told in the book of Joshua. Namely, the epistle to the Ephesians. The book of Joshua is to the Old Testament. what the epistle of the Ephesians is to the New. Interesting, and then it was further confirmed as I was reading uh, author and pastor Warren Worsby's commentary on Joshua, and he said in his introduction, this book, speaking of the book of Joshua, illustrates how believers today can say goodbye to the old life and enter into their rich inheritance in Jesus Christ. It explains how we can meet our enemies and defeat them And how to claim for ourselves all that we have in Jesus Christ. And then he references Ephesians chapter one verse three, where Paul said, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ." Wordsby went on to say, "What Paul's letter to the Ephesians explains doctrinally, the book of Joshua illustrates practically. It shows us how to claim our riches." In Christ, end quote. So I feel pretty confident the Lord wants us to study the book of Joshua. Now I realize that for a lot of Christians today, there's a mentality that I've noticed, and this is just speaking in general terms, not specifically of our church, but there are many Christians today that regard the Old Testament as, well, old, okay? I mean, I think of it as old in the sense of being outdated, you know, old news, irrelevant, that kind of thing. And because of it, a lot of Christians who feel that way are not spending a lot of time reading the Old Testament, of course, because in their mind, what's the point? If it's the outdated Testament, why do I want to hang out and what's old news? I want to stick with the new stuff, right? The, the, The relevant stuff, the New Testament. But let me say this, you will never really understand the New Testament without reading and understanding the Old Testament. As someone has said, in the Old Testament, you have the New Testament concealed And in the New Testament, you have the Old Testament revealed. In other words, the new can't be understood apart from the old, and the old cannot be appreciated apart from the new. What you need to do is you need to stop looking at the Bible as uh, a couple of disconnected books. That's the problem. A lot of Christians really don't see the Bible as one book. I mean, technically they know it is, but they tend to divide it into the Old and New Testament and the Old they write off as the outdated Testament, and then you get the the relevant Testament. What you need to do is you need to start looking at the Bible as one unfolding revelation given to us by God. And once you begin to look at the Bible that way, it will take on new meaning for you. You will begin to see the Old Testament as preparatory for the new, and as such, essential for living the Christian life. Alan Redpath said along these lines, he said, Furthermore, we begin to discover that God's way of dealing with man in the Old Testament is but a picture of his dealing with man in the New. Salvation for a fallen race was to be through the man Christ Jesus from the very beginning. But prior to his coming, his death and resurrection, God dealt with the nation into whom Christ was born in the same way as he would thereafter deal with men individually through the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, God's dealing with Israel was a type of of his dealings with you and me, end quote. Now, no one knew this better than Paul the Apostle, because he said in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, he said, for whatever things were written before, he's talking about the Old Testament, were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And again, the Scriptures he's talking about are the Old Testament Scriptures. So Paul says, look, man, the Old Testament... It's not outdated or irrelevant. It's very much relevant. In fact, those things were written for our learning in the New. We learn from the lives of these Old Testament saints. I look at guys like David and Joseph and Daniel, and I see the Holy Spirit saying, look at these men. This is the kind of life you want to live in your Christian life. Then I see guys like Samson and Saul and other people. And the Holy Spirit's got a big circle and a line through it over them. This is not how you want to be. The New Testament gives us in principle what the Old Testament lives out in practice. And so it's very valuable for us to know and understand the Old Testament. Now, even though we're going to be studying the book of Joshua, and even though the book of Joshua deals with Israel's experiences in the land of Canaan, which, of course, we're going to spend most of this study focusing on, I want you to know that every story has a setting, has a context, has a background. We can't really understand where we are unless we understand where we've been. And I really don't think we can be successful in the future until we have learned from the mistakes of the past. Even as poet and philosopher George Santayana said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Therefore, Before we can appreciate and appropriate the lessons and blessings of Israel's experience in Canaan, we first need to learn from their life in Egypt and their mistakes in the wilderness. See, the story of the children of Israel from their captivity in Egypt to their wanderings in the wilderness to their eventual entering into and taking possession of the promised land, listen, is a model of the life of the New Testament believer from captivity to conversion, and then from carnality to conquest. Or in other words, it pictures the progression in the Christian life. These things were written for our learning, Paul said, right? So therefore, as we look at Israel and how God dealt with them, it shouldn't surprise us that in this historical record is a type for us to learn from. And how that, it pictures the progression of of the Christian life, from our bondage to sin and Satan, to our conversion through Christ, and then as Christians, to our growth out of the carnal flesh life into the life of the Spirit, which is a life of victory and blessing. We can learn much from God's dealing with Israel. Now to understand the story of Israel, we need to see the history of Israel in three geographic locations which correspond to the three stages of their relationship with God. The story opens up in Egypt, right? Right? That is the first location we want to focus on. Of course, you realize that in the Bible, Egypt is always a type of the world. Whenever you read your Old Testament and you see Egypt, think of the world, all right, because Egypt is always a type of the world in Scripture. Pharaoh, who we know was a cruel and unmerciful tyrant, is a type of Satan. And the children of Israel were slaves of Pharaoh in bondage in Egypt, just as we were once slaves of Satan in bondage to him in this world. And guess what? As Israel found themselves in slavery there in Egypt, that's where they were doomed to remain and that's where they were doomed to die because they had absolutely no power to free themselves. Just like when we were born into this world, we were born in sin, in bondage to the devil. And as such, we had no power to redeem ourselves. If God had not sent a redeemer to rescue mankind, we would have been doomed to live forever is a condemned race where we would live in Egypt and die basically in Egypt in the sense that we would be eternally lost. But as we read the story of how God dealt with Israel, it shows us that how God, who was rich in mercy, had compassion on them and did send them a deliverer, namely Moses, who was a type of Christ. And Moses led them out of their slavery in Egypt by God's mighty power, was with a a strong and outstretched arm. The Bible says that God demonstrated his power through his deliverer, Moses. So God used Moses to lead them out of Egypt through the power of God and the blood of the Passover lamb, which they took and applied on the doorpost and lintel of their house, which caused the angel of death to pass over their house. And after leading them out of Egypt, the Lord then opened the Red Sea and they passed through it on dry ground into the wilderness, which is the next geographic location we want to focus on. But before we do, let me just point out one thing. All of this symbolizes how God worked in our lives. Again, we were once in bondage to Satan and Egypt in the world, right? But God, through his miraculous power, the new birth is a miracle. And God, through his mighty power and through the blood of the Passover lamb, our Passover lamb, as Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus Christ, When we applied the blood of Christ to our lives by faith. It caused the judgment of God to pass over our lives. We will never come into judgment anymore, any longer. We have passed from death to life, and therefore, there is, therefore now, as Paul said in Romans 8, verse 1, now no condemnation or judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. And once we have applied his blood to our lives, then we pass through the Red Sea, quote-unquote. See, when they came through the Red Sea, it was symbolic of baptism, but not water baptism because they came through the Red Sea on what? Dry ground. They didn't get wet. In fact, you can read Exodus chapter 14, verses 21, 22, and 29 because three times in those three verses, God makes it a point to point out that they walked through on dry ground. Three times. This was a a type or a picture of baptism, but not water baptism. Well, then what kind of baptism was it? Well, you see, the word baptism is a word that simply means to immerse. Well, but what are we immersing into? Well, that depends on the context. Sometimes it is water. Sometimes it's the Spirit. Because the Bible talks about how we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist said, that there was one coming after him whose sandal straps he was not worthy to loose. And he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. There's there's a variety of things in the New Testament that are associated with the word baptism. You have to look at the context. Certainly water baptism is one of those things. But here it speaks of a dry baptism. What does that mean? It's the the baptism that Paul spoke of in Galatians chapter 3 verse 27. He said, for as many of you as were baptized into christ have put on christ see that happened instantaneously when you gave your heart to christ and applied his blood to your to the doorpost and lintel of your heart you might say by faith when you did that you were instantly miraculously baptized into christ in other words you were taken and placed in christ see in christ is the place where all blessings flow to us as children of god we studied the book of Ephesians for two years. I'm going to give you a little test. What was the theme in two words of the entire book of Ephesians? Let me hear it. Thank you. I feel validated. <laughs> in Christ. That's absolutely right. And what is Paul trying to tell us? How that God has given to us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places where? In Christ. See, that's what it means to be saved. You're in Christ. How do you get in Christ? You accept him by by faith as your Lord and Savior, and the Spirit of God baptizes you into Christ. Then we take you down to the water and dip you in the water because that's an outward ritual or a symbol that really points to that spiritual reality. Why do I make a big point out of this? Because there are many Christian groups who teach that water baptism is in view in these passages and that water baptism is essential for salvation. That's absolutely untrue. We don't believe in baptismal regeneration. Christian New Testament baptism never precedes conversion. It always follows it. We don't baptize infants here at Calvary because we don't believe that that regenerates them. We wait until a person is old enough to know what they're doing and after they receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, they've already been baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. Now we take them and baptize them in water to signify that. You can read Romans chapter 6 because Paul talks about that. So I just bring that up because some people want to tack on water baptism as, that, as if that's essential and they point to the Red Sea crossing and say, well, I see, they went through the Red Sea, that's a type of water baptism. They didn't get wet. They didn't get wet. The Holy Spirit wants us to understand that. He's not talking about water baptism. Or he's talking about the baptism that comes when the Spirit of God places you in Christ at the moment of salvation. All right, so now the children of Israel found themselves in the wilderness, which is the next stage in their relationship with God and the second geographic location in, their, in the history of the nation, the second significant geographic location. Of course, they wound up wandering and stopping all kinds of places. We're talking about the three significant locations. The first is Egypt, the second is the wilderness. Now, I want you to understand, it's important to realize that God only intended them to remain in the wilderness for a very short time. Just long enough for Him to give them the law. Long enough to have them build the tabernacle and ordain the priesthood. And then it was God's intention to bring them directly into the promised land. In fact, as we have pointed out many times before, it was only an 11-day journey from Mount Sinai where they received the law to the border of Canaan. An 11-day journey. started out okay. When they finally got there, you remember the story how Moses sent in the 12 spies, one from each of the 12 tribes, including Joshua and Caleb. They were two of the spies. They went in to scope out the land. And after 40 days, they come back. Ten of the spies brought an evil report. They told the the people, you know what? We can't go in there. There There's some big boys in there. There's giants. I mean, folks, literal giants. The Anakim lived in the land of Canaan. The Anakim, sons of Anak, were literal giants. And so the ten evil spies or the ten spies who brought back the evil reports, we can't go in there, man. These people are big. They live in fortified cities. We're no match for them. Joshua and Caleb said, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, they're big, but our God's bigger. He's given it to us. Let's go. It's ours. But see, even though God had just demonstrated to them, the children of Israel, how awesome and powerful he really was by bringing 10 plagues against the strongest nation on the face of the earth, breaking the back of this Egyptian empire, culminating with the death of the firstborn, leading his people out with a mighty and outstretched arm. And then as they came into the wilderness, the Egyptian army began to pursue them. God parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground. And as the Egyptians uh, began to follow them, God closed the water up on the Egyptians and drowned the Egyptian army. You would think after seeing that, these people would have been kind of fired up about their God. And would have said, oh man, what do we care about giants? Our God is just, hes He can do anything. But they didn't. They staggered at the promises of God through unbelief. And they complained against Moses and said, you know what, forget you, let's appoint a leader who will take us back to Egypt. Can you imagine that? They would rather have lived in slavery in Egypt rather than trusting God to lead them into the promised land and give them victory. Hey, look, I know that a walk of faith is not easy, and that's what we're talking about. You know, the promised land was all about faith. It was all about walking in faith and trusting God. Look, walking in faith is not always easy because we do face giants in our lives, and you fill in the blanks as to what that means. They could be physical giants in the sense of, you know, you're battling with some terrible disease. It could be financial giants in the sense that you're out of work, you don't know where the money, money's coming from to make the next house payment. It could be marital giants, your marriage is crumbling and falling apart, or one of your kids is wayward, or you fill in the blanks. There are giants that come against us all the time in the Christian life. Are we going to trust our God or give up And just forget the whole deal. Apparently the people of Israel wanted to give up and forget the whole deal. And because of their unbelief, God forbid that that generation should enter into the good land He had promised them. And instead He drove them back out into the wilderness where they wasted the rest of their lives wandering aimlessly through the desert for 40 years, wandering in circles until that entire generation died out, those who were 20 years old and above, All except for two men, Joshua and Caleb. And then God, through Joshua, led a new generation into the land of promise. I don't know if you have thought about this, but the wilderness had a twofold purpose. It was a sentence of death upon one generation, but it was also a time of preparation for the other. For the older generation, those that refused to believe God, those that wanted to appoint a leader to take them back to Egypt, it was a coffin. They were dead men walking, literally, and they eventually died in the wilderness and were buried there, never entering into the promised land, never knowing the blessings that God wanted to give them. But for that younger generation, it was not a coffin, it was a crucible that God used to purify them from all impurities like unbelief and pride and so on. All these things were kind of like burned away like dross in a refiner's fire as their faith was purified, and their dependence upon God was forged like steel in fire. And after 40 years of watching God lead their lives, provide their needs, and protect them from their enemies, well, finally they were ready to face the giants in the land of Canaan. Finally, they were ready to live a life of victory. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. This didn't happen overnight. Spiritual growth never does. But listen, they grew out of their carnality, that younger generation I'm talking about, they grew out of their carnality into spirituality slowly over time, just like us. I know that there are many times as Christians that we look at our lives and go, why haven't I grown more than I, you know, why am I not farther along in my walk with the Lord? I see some people, you know, and man, they really are people of the word, and there's just a spiritual maturity about them that I'm lacking. And sometimes we can get a little discouraged. But remember, we are growing. We are growing as we yield more and more to the Holy Spirit. He is working in us as we're giving more and more control to the Spirit of God. He is really uh, able to lead our lives more fully, and we're growing out of our carnality into spirituality. See, the wilderness, as we've said before, symbolically uh, symbolically represents spiritual immaturity, or as some have called it the life of the flesh, the life of the flesh. Some have said, well, you know, Israel couldn't have been saved when they were in the wilderness. There's a lot of controversy. So a lot of people who say, you know what? The wilderness does not represent a place where these people were saved. These people acted too carnally. They couldn't have been saved. Well, I beg to differ. They were brought out of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb, right? They went through the Red Sea, which was a type of baptism. Spiritually speaking, they were baptized into Christ. In the wilderness, what did God do? Well, he fed them, right? How did he feed them? He fed them with bread from heaven, which they called manna. That was a derogatory term, by the way. God never called it manna. He called it bread from heaven. Manna means, what is it? See, when God first rained manna on them, they went outside their tents and saw this stuff laying on the ground and said, what is this? You know? But God still poured it out every day, faithfully feeding them with this bread from heaven and water from the rock, right? Both of those, the New Testament says, were symbolic of Christ. He's the bread that came down from heaven, John 6. He's the living water, John 4. So these signify Christ. The Holy Spirit is telling us in a spiritual sense, as the story is relating to us spiritually, He is trying to tell us that these people were saved. It's just that they were still being dominated by their flesh and not really controlled by the Spirit. Remember what we we as we studied Ephesians chapter five and verse eighteen, Paul says, "Don't be drunk with wine, wherein is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit." And in the Greek, it's "be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit." But the idea of being filled with is being controlled by. Paul is telling us: if you really want to live in the fullness of all God has for you, if you want to live in your own spiritual promised land, then you've got to be controlled by the Spirit you cannot be controlled by your flesh. See, this is what Israel had going on. They were saved, you might say, in the spiritual. They were saved, and yet they were still dominated by their flesh. They were still controlled basically by their fleshly desires. And that carnality manifested itself in numerous ways in the wilderness. In fact, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 10, Paul talks about Israel. He wants to use them as an example, right? These things were written for our learning. He wants to show us the mistakes Israel made in the wilderness to show us not to do those things. And he gives us a few examples of what they did, how their carnality was manifested. He says in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 10, he says that they lusted after evil things. The word means to have a strong desire. In other words, they weren't satisfied with what God was providing. God was giving bread from heaven. They said, no, we're not satisfied. We want meat. They murmured and complained. till finally God gave them meat, the quail, right? And while it was still in their mouths, they were like madmen. You know, they couldn't wait to pounce on these quail and start stuffing their faces. And God brought a plague and, and wiped out thousands. And they were buried there in the wilderness in the graves of lust, as it's called in the Old Testament. Christians who are never satisfied with what God is giving but are always looking around, Coveting what others have. Well, why can't I have what they have? Well, what about what God's given you? Didn't Paul say, I've learned to be content with whatever God has given to me? That's a spiritually minded person. A carnally minded person is never satisfied with what they have. It's always they want what others have. So lusting after a thing, coveting. He mentions idolatry in verse 7. Idolatry, very simply, is loving and pursuing something other than God. Anything other than God, whether it be a, a goal or a person or anything. Money, fame, again, fill in the blanks. I know there's a lot of Christians who love the Lord and yet there are idols in their hearts. There are things competing for their love for God. And these things are robbing them of the fullness of the Spirit in their life. I mean, you can't serve two masters. You can't have a divided heart. Joshua said at the end of this book, choose this day whom you're going to serve. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You've got to choose. You've got to be all in or get all out. But you can't have the world and the Lord. You can't try to combine the two. And so Israel walked in that idolatry. In verse 8, he mentions sexual immorality. That speaks for itself. Sexual immorality. In verse 9, he talks about them challenging the goodness of, and the guidance of God in the wilderness we learn in the old testament how after a while because the journey was difficult they became impatient or discouraged what do they do they they cried out against Moses but ultimately against the Lord and here's the reasoning if God really loved us if he was such a good God why are we in this place what are we still doing out here why are you in the wilderness because you wanted to be in the wilderness don't blame God you know, A lot of times Christians will blame the Lord for where they are in life. Wait, wait a minute. Let's be fair about this. If you're choosing carnal things over God, if he's not your first love and your life is really characterized by a lot of selfishness and carnality, you're going to find yourself in difficult places. And it's not God's fault. But they complained against God's goodness and God's guidance. What is he doing? Look at where we are. Where is God? How? If God was really leading my life, why would I be in this place? I don't know, but sometimes God will lead our lives in difficult paths. But they're the right paths. See, we want an easy trip. We want an easy Christianity. We don't want difficult. We, we become impatient quickly when God tries to build in us a little perseverance. We want to challenge him, his goodness. And in verse 10, Paul talks about their complaining due to rebellion that there were a group of people, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, who were not happy with the ministry God had given to them. They wanted to be priests, even though God had forbidden them from being priests. There's a lot of Christians who are not happy with the ministries God has called them to. They want to do something else. They want to have a visible ministry. And so they come into churches, and they begin to steal sheep away. They begin to gather disciples unto themselves. I've seen it in our church over the years when people have come in and done those kinds of things. But how can God really bless your life if you're always complaining out of a heart of rebellion and not being content with where God has put you? But through all of this, Paul is warning us, using Israel as an example. He said in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 10, he said, These things became our examples that we should learn from their mistakes and not lust after the same evil things. I mean, if you study 1 Corinthians, that whole section there in chapter 10, you realize that what Paul is saying is it's possible for a person to get saved, come out of the world, have the blessings of God upon them where God is watching over them, providing for them, guiding their life, just like he did Israel, and yet not enter into the fullness of all that God, all that God has for that person's life. Because Israel died, most of them died in the wilderness. Paul said, with most of them, God was not well pleased. Well, that was one of the great understatements of the Bible. That whole adult generation, maybe a million or a million and a half people, all died in the wilderness, except for two men, Joshua and Caleb. And Paul's point is, look, just because you're saved doesn't guarantee that you're going to be able to, you're going to automatically go all the way to the fullness of all that God has for you. There are pitfalls along the way. And you have to be careful that you don't get caught up in carnality, as Paul would say in other places, don't become entangled with the cares of this life, like Israel did. And it hindered them from reaching the fullness of all that God had for them. It is possible to know the Lord and still live a carnal, unproductive life for Him, a spiritual wilderness experience. Again, the wilderness represents carnality, complaining, unbelief, a state of arrested spiritual development. All of that is really what the wilderness is all about. Well, that brings us to the third geographical location in Israel's history that corresponds, listen, to the third and the highest level in the relationship with God, and that is the land of Canaan. What does Canaan represent? Well, we've talked about this, but let me just say for the sake of the new folks, over the years, Canaan has been misunderstood by a lot of Christians. Some of the most beautiful hymns ever written like in Canaan to heaven. And the crossing over the Jordan or through the Jordan is symbolic of death you know swing low sweet chariot coming for to carry me home you know talking about carrying me through the jordan you know and into heaven well that's a beautiful hymn it's just faulty theology because once joshua led them into the land of canaan they fought many battles with the canaanites when we get to heaven there's not going to be any wars fought you know why because there's not going to be any enemies left by that time All the rebels in the universe, including Satan and all of his demons, are going to be in hell. Heaven will not be a place where we fight any battles. They're all done by that time. So Canaan doesn't represent heaven. So what does it represent? Listen, it represents life in the Spirit here on earth, right now. That life of victory and blessing and fruitfulness that is ours in Christ, now. Not someday, but right now. Sadly, though, a life that... Fewer and fewer Christians nowadays seem to be entering into. So much carnality in the body of Christ. So much defeat. So much wasting of of time and lives that could be used for God's service. Wandering aimlessly, pursuing things that are never going to last, things of the earth, and not really living for the Lord, gathering and laying up treasures in heaven. Again, as we all know, Canaan is called the promised land. And spiritually, that equates to what Peter said. Remember how Peter said that God has given to us many exceedingly great and precious what? Promises. Peter said that God has given to us many, many great promises. But you know what? They're not ours automatically. You have to appropriate those promises by faith. As we're going to see when we enter into the book of Joshua, God's going to say to them, everywhere the sole of your foot touches, I have already given it to you but they still had to go in and fight the battles and defeat the enemy and take the territory by faith it was theirs but if they didn't appropriate that land by faith they weren't going to have it just like in the Christian life we need to appropriate what God has promised to us by faith and walk in that faith every day to watch Jesus Christ give us the victory And bless our life by leading us in the right paths and using us to defeat various enemies that come against us, both inside of the flesh and outside from the world. These are not things that are ours automatically, though. We're going to learn these lessons over and over again as we study this book. So we have three locations that Israel found themselves in. Egypt, the wilderness, and then Canaan. These three places correspond to three different categories of relationship with God. Paul, interestingly, divides the world up into these three categories in 2 Corinthians 14 and then through the rest of the chapter into the beginning of chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. You don't really have to turn there, but just listen to me. Interestingly, we see in the Old Testament, Egypt, the wilderness, and Canaan, three different locations that speak of three different kinds of relationship with God that Israel uh, had. And then Paul in the New Testament divides the world into those same three categories. He talks about the natural man at the end of chapter 2. He talks about the spiritual man a little farther in chapter 2. And then beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he talks about the, the carnal man. Now, the natural man is a term. Natural man, that's a term that speaks of somebody who was born into this world through natural means, but has not yet been born again spiritually. We know from John 3 that Jesus told a Pharisee, Nicodemus, unless you're born again or born from above, you're not going to see heaven. We know that to go to heaven, you have to be born twice, once physically, the second time spiritually. The natural man is just an unsaved person. They're born once, they're born physically into this world, but they haven't yet been born again of the Spirit. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, he says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, the natural man does not have the equipment, okay, Uh, the receiving equipment, if we could put it that way, to receive the Spirit's broadcasts, you might say. The Spirit is speaking. The Spirit is guiding. He's leading. Those of us, who are born of the Spirit, we're tuned in. The natural man doesn't have the equipment. In fact, the word natural in verse 14 is sukaikos in the Greek. And it really means, it comes from two, uh, the word suke, which is the word for soul in Greek, and the I-K-O-S at the end uh, signifies controlled by. So sukaikos means somebody who is controlled by the soul, the soulish person. In the scripture, the soul represents the seat of the emotions. The unsaved person is dominated by their emotions. They live for the appetites of the body. See, that's like the animal kingdom. Animals are two-dimensional creatures. They have a body and a consciousness or a soul. And their soul lives pretty much to satisfy whatever the body wants. Animals eat, they drink, you know, they they procreate, but it's that's the level they live on. The natural man or the unsaved person lives pretty much on that level. They have a soul or a consciousness, but it's pretty much dominated by their body appetites. And as such, they're completely disconnected from God. They may go to church, and they may give God lip service, but they really don't have any communion with God because they don't have a spirit. Their spirit is dead. And Paul contrasts the natural man, Sukaikos, with the spiritual man, Pneumatikos, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 15. And that just means a person who is dominated by the spirit. Once you give your heart to Christ, you're born of the Spirit. In other words, now you are a three-dimensional being. Your Spirit is made alive. It's born again, and it's connected to God through His Spirit. And you know what? Once you're born of the Spirit, it's a whole different level of existence. You're a three-dimensional creature. And what characterizes you now as a Spirit-filled three-dimensional believer is not your mind is not dominated with the fleshly desires anymore. But now your mind is dominated with the word of God and the will of God and the work of God. As Paul called it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, you have the mind of Christ. That's the difference between the soulish man and the spiritual man. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul talks about the carnal man. Now, there's a controversy as to who is in view here. All right, The natural man, that's easy. That's an unbeliever. No problem. Figuring that out. The spiritual man or woman, that's easy too. This is a spirit-filled believer. What about this carnal man? Who, who does this represent? A lot of people say, well, it's got to represent the world. Again, just another way of talking about the people of the world. Well, he's already talked about them. He called them natural, men and women. So who are they? Well, he called them brethren. He also says that they were babes in Christ. So to me, I think it's obvious that these carnal people, in the context here, Paul is talking about carnal Christians. Some would argue with that. Some don't believe there is such a thing as a carnal Christian. Uh, look around the church. I think you see a lot of examples of somebody who can be saved and still not be dominated by the Spirit or controlled by the Spirit, but still be dominated to, the, to a large degree by their fleshly desires. In fact, the word carnal is the Greek word sarkikos, and it means to be dominated by the inclinations of the fallen nature. Who's Paul writing to? He's writing to those in Corinth, and Paul is telling them that after four or five years of being Christians, they have barely come through the door of salvation. They have barely come through the door. They they walked into salvation through Christ and set up camp right there. So a lot of people like that. You talk to them, hey, you want to Come to Bible study. You want to, hey, we got a ministry going on. You want to come and give us a hand? No, nah, no, nah, I'm good. Well, don't you want to, you know, don't you want to study the Bible? Don't you want to go out there and serve the Lord? No, nah, as long as I'm going to heaven, that's all I really cared about. Just, you know, I'm saved. That's all I care about. And Paul is saying, man, you guys are like that. You know, I mean, after all these years, you have settled for Christian living on the lowest rung of the ladder. He is saying, in effect, you put yourself in a position where Your relationship with God is literally profiting you nothing outside of salvation. You're getting none of the benefits of walking in the Spirit. You don't know anything of the blessings and the victory that come when you walk in the Spirit. As Alan Redpath said, the carnal Christian is a child of God, born again and on his way to heaven, but he's traveling third class. Don't forget Paul ministered in Corinth 18 months, second only to his three years he spent in Ephesus. And when he left, he considered them still babes in their faith, and by the time he wrote this epistle to them, he says in verse 3 of chapter 3, he said, even now you are still carnal. They had no excuse. This church was founded by Paul the Apostle. He went to Corinth, preached the gospel, they got saved, he started a church, and then he stayed there for a year and a half, and he taught them faithfully the word of God. I mean, they had no excuse, right? It was their choice not to grow up. They were stuck between Egypt and Canaan, living in a spiritual wilderness of immaturity and carnality. You say, well, how do we know carnal Christians? What do they really look like? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting because you can make some parallels between physical babies and carnal Christian babies. There are some similarities. I'll give you just a few. Physical babies can't feed themselves. They need somebody to feed them. What did Paul say here in chapter 3, verse 2? I fed you with milk. I had to feed you with milk because you couldn't feed yourself. Carnal Christians are either incapable or unwilling to feed themselves. And when they come to church, they expect the pastor to give them all the nourishment they should have been gathering for themselves all week long. You better make it. Pastor, you better make sure you've got some kind of a smorgasbord. When I come to church, boy, I expect to be fed good hey, no pressure there, right? But the problem is, and if the pastor doesn't speak to them, to their issue at that moment, they feel like they've been cheated. When in reality, look, it's really not my responsibility to feed you. I mean, I enjoy doing it, and God has called me to do it, but I can't be your only source of nourishment. You've got to be feeding yourself throughout the week, getting into the Word of God, listening to teachers, getting out some books, studying and meditating on the Scriptures. Carnal Christians never feed themselves. They always look for somebody else to feed them. Secondly, physical babies are totally self-centered. You ever notice that? They don't care about anyone but themselves. And if they can't have what they want, they scream and throw a tantrum. I've noticed carnal Christians do the same thing. They're completely self-absorbed. I mean, God forbid you should not let them do something they want to do. They kick and scream and throw a hissy fit and either leave the church or, you know, stay and sow a bunch of discord. His pastor or my leaders wouldn't let me do this or go over here and whatever else, whatever it was. And physical babies are constantly making messes of various kinds that others have to clean up. And I tell you, where there's a lot of carnality, where there's a lot of carnal Christians, it's a it's a real drain on energy and resources because you're always trying to clean up messes. You know, they don't they're they're, they're so self focused that they hurt people's feelings. They say things they shouldn't. You know, they're they're just it's just a mess oftentimes. Now, look, when you're talking about a physical baby, we expect these kinds of things from little kids, right? When you have a little, a, a little baby in the house, you expect them to be messy and self-absorbed and uh, crying when they don't get their way. You know, that's just, it just that just comes with the territory. If they were 15 or 20 years old, I don't think that would be so acceptable, though. And yet You've got Christians who have been saved for 15 or 20, 25 years, and they still haven't grown up. They're still doing the same things. It's sad. It's sad. Look, all Christians, once they are saved, enter into a spiritual wilderness. We're all babes in Christ, right? The moment you receive Christ, you are a babe in Christ. And as such, you enter into a spiritual wilderness. And there's going to be times when, of course, as a new believer in Christ, there's going to be times when people like that are going to, you know, they're going to need more time and effort. Uh, They're going to make some messes. They're going to throw some tantrums at times. You understand that you give them a little extra room, you give them a little extra grace because they're new in the faith, but you don't have to have the right heart. They're going to want to grow out of that into a more spiritual walk. All Christians start out in the wilderness. But how long you choose to remain there, that's up to you. Now look, as we come to the book of Joshua, the years of wandering for the nation of Israel have finally come to an end. Can you imagine this? Imagine that you were living back then. Imagine what it would have been like to be born, we'll say, during this wilderness wandering. Maybe you were born five or ten years into it, and so you've only known the wilderness. It's all you've ever known. You're 30 years old now, but all those years, all you had to cling to was your mom and dad telling you, someday this is going to be over with. Someday this, this wandering in this wilderness aimlessly is going to be done There's a good land that God has promised us. We know it because Joshua and Caleb went in and they spied it out and they brought back a cluster of grapes that was so gigantic they both had to carry it on their shoulders. We know it's a good land. And that day is coming. And that was what they had to cling to all those years. That there was better days coming. And now finally as they stand at the border of the land God was preparing to use his servant Joshua to lead them into the promised land with all the richness and fullness that that represented. I would imagine they were extremely excited. And as they stood at the border of the land that day, it signified a new beginning, a new start, a new era in their walk with God. Even as I hope, as we stand here today, it also signifies a new beginning in your relationship with the Lord. The book of Joshua is a spiritual instruction manual on victorious Christian living. And if we study it, and as you learn the principles and you apply them by faith into your life, I'm convinced that God is going to then, by His Spirit, cause you to step from the wilderness into a life that is brand new. Something that maybe for some of you, you've only read about in other people's lives. You've only heard about through hearsay. You know, you've read the the biographies of great men and women in Christ, You've heard how they step from the wilderness into a place of blessing and fruitfulness and victory. And you've always wanted that for yourself. But you know what? It's always been just hearsay. It's always been, uh, you know, living through somebody else vicariously through their experience. God wants you to have your own experience. He doesn't want you to live off the experience of others. He wants you to know that the promised land is real for you. And I know that there's a lot of Christians who are going through a tough time. And and maybe this morning you came here and you really do, do feel like you've been in a wilderness. You know, it's like it's dry and it's just your walk with Christ seems to be aimless. There's no purpose, it seems, to it. You wander aimlessly around day after day. There's no fruit. There's no victory. There's nothing to look forward to. And you come to church looking to be encouraged and you hear the pastor dump on you about carnal Christians and about this and that. And you're thinking, man, I didn't need to hear this. Yes, you do. To show you that, you know what, this morning you're standing at the border of a new relationship with God. This is your new beginning. And that's why we're studying this book. So we can glean the, the principles and by God's grace apply them into our lives. That once and for all you can step from the wilderness, which God so wants you to step from, into the life of the Spirit. And it's going to be an incredible new experience. Something that you've never experienced before. Will it have battles? Will there be giants to fight? Yeah, there'll be battles. But like Joshua and Caleb said, the land is ours. The giants are no match for our God. Let's go in and take possession of all the promises that God has given to us. If you have that kind of heart and you are ready to really trust God by faith, I guarantee you this is going to be a revolutionary study in your life. May God give us the grace They have the heart of Joshua and Caleb who said, let's go, man. I'm tired of the wilderness. Let's go. And let's see what God's going to do. Father, we just thank you so much for your goodness and grace. Lord, I know that there are some here this morning who do feel like their whole Christian life has been lived in the wilderness. They do love you. They want so desperately to walk with you in closer fellowship. They want to know what what it's like to have victory over the giants in their lives, over the bad habits and and other lusts that they constantly wrestle with. They would love to be, Lord, filled with your spirit and being used by you for your glory. They they would love to have a a ministry that they can serve you through. But as of yet, it seems like everything has been drudgery, has been um, aimless wandering in a spiritual desert. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that's about to come to an end. Give us grace as we study this book to learn the principles that allowed Israel to go from the wilderness into the promised land. Father, we thank you. Bless this study. Use it, Lord, beyond anything we can even hope or imagine. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.